Good afternoon and welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. I am Jeff Smelser and we are going to be talking about the book of Revelation today. Just an introduction, but before we get into that, let me welcome Chase Byers from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania and Joe Works from Elmira, New York. Good afternoon, guys. Good afternoon. Hey, gentlemen. You know, um, I could ask you guys how you're doing, but you know, like always, we've been talking for 15 minutes or so before we actually talk to anybody else but for the sake of everybody else because they don't know how you do how you guys do it well actually i don't even think you asked how i was doing when we talked earlier yeah yeah you you normally it, don't it ask that anyways it, yeah oh okay well how are you doing <laughs> i'm very blessed thank you very much let's talk about the book of revelation oh uh, i'm sorry chase how are you doing i'm doing really well i think someday i'm going to change it up and just get into what my problems are at the, at the start of the program all right. Well, maybe I'll quit asking then. Um, let, let's talk about the book of Revelation. And what we're going to do is we're just going to really kind of look at an introduction to the letter. And I think the best way to do an introduction is to look at the introduction. Um, the first chapter of the book of Revelation is kind of an introduction. If, if you look at the book of Revelation, you have the first chapter wherein uh, John introduces himself, of course, and and he talks about how the Lord appeared to him and gave him some instructions to write to seven churches. And uh, so he does. He, he writes to these seven churches, the Lord actually speaking to these seven churches. And we find what is said to each of those seven churches in chapters two and three. And if we pay some attention to these first three chapters, I think we get a real good handle on what the, revelation, what the book of Revelation is all about. So, uh, guys, if you could, could I get one of you just to read the first seven verses? And by the way, we'll 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 get a we'll take a look at these first three chapters first of all, just to see, you know, what does it tell us about the audience and the purpose of what's written here, and then we'll go back and maybe look at in some detail what's said to the seven churches and maybe even some of the things in chapter one. So, uh, Joe, could you read the first uh, three verses of Revelation chapter one? Verse three verses. Yeah. Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ and to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Of course, there's two phrases in those first three verses that would suggest that the book of Revelation is about things that are fairly soon to, to take place. And what are those two phrases? In verse one, shortly take place. And then in verse three, the time is near. Yeah. So I don't know how it is that so many people overlook that because so many people automatically, when they hear the book of Revelation, they automatically start thinking about things happening in 2021 or things that are going to take place in the near future from our standpoint. Um, and, and sure, you know, sometimes when it talk, when the Bible talks about the future, time is relative, uh, but you would think that you would, it would at least catch your attention that he says shortly to take place, the time is at hand. So then when we come down in the chapter and we see John uh, describing his own circumstance and the circumstance of those to whom he's writing, uh, we should recognize he's writing to them about the problems they are facing then. So let's let's so, just skip down. Yeah, Chase, go ahead. 
just I want to ask a question. So why why are we so quick to want to apply revelation into the future when we talk when we talk to people? Why are they so quick to want to do that? Because if we were to read this in any other book of the Bible, I think we would be like, oh, this is just about the times that are going to happen soon that take place. Like Second Timothy three, Paul says kind of something similar to that. Yeah. Why is Revelation the book that everyone just kind of wants to read past that and apply it to future stuff? I don't know the whole answer. Maybe Joe knows the whole answer, but I think part of the answer is because most people think they know a little bit about the book of Revelation, but they've really not read the book of Revelation for themselves. They've been exposed to ideas lifted out of the book of Revelation from things like um, the uh, Left Behind series that was a series of books and, and a movie. Uh, in the, Back in the 60s, there was a guy named Hal Lindsey, who wrote some books. One was The Late Great Planet Earth, and uh, and another was Countdown to Armageddon. And these were very popular books in evangelical circles. And they, uh, in a very popular style, went through and talked about things in the book of Revelation and connected them to modern events. And so a lot of people were exposed to ideas from the book of Revelation in connection with the idea that it's about geopolitical things happening today and that's that's been the what's been preached in a lot of churches so i think that's part of why joe maybe you have some other thoughts about why maybe chase you have some thoughts yourself yeah i I think you're spot on there i might also add from what i have read which is not extensively but previous generations and even previous uh, centuries um have felt the same way uh, about the book of Revelation, maybe not as uh, uh, as worldwide, but writers in the 1800s and early 1900s uh, even felt that this book was about things that were taking place, whether it's the Civil War or World War One or something like that. Um, I would suggest that some of this may be just a man's pride, that we sort of feel like we're at the end of time. What else can be invented? What else can be done? We've gone to the moon or, you know, whatever it might be, that, that, that this is it. And it, I think it's probably just a part of ego to think that, you know, whatever whatever's going to be the end of the world, well, it must be happening in my time because this, because yeah. I'm it. Yes, I, I've made that point similarly, Joe, to other folks that it really is funny to, to self, it's a selfish way of thinking to think that this can only apply to me and my situation when there have been so many hundreds of years that went by before us that very similar things that are happening to us now have happened in years past. And yet we still think, well, we're the special ones that all this is about. Mm -hmm. And it, yeah, I I think similarly to you. And what do you call it? Historocentrism or something like that. The, the tendency for people to think that their own time in history is the most, the worst, the whatever. Um, and, And when you have a book that has a lot of, symbolism in it that is not immediately transparent it's an you can't just look at it and instantly it's open to some interpretation i guess if you don't know where it's coming from then the tendency is going to be to say oh this must be about what's happening in ukraine today for example yes and i think when you get into books that are hard to understand just from the strict language of it if it is symbolic or metaphoric or whatever i think people have a tendency to then go well, I don't have the ability to understand this. So what is someone else saying about it? And then that that gets them off the rails because they're just relying on what someone else says rather than reading it for themselves. But there is something fairly clear as we, as we look at these first three chapters. Let's come to verse nine. 
uh, it says, I, John, your brother, and partaker with you in the tribulation. Now, I'm going to pause there. I'm going to sit on that word. Now, some translations use a different word rather than tribulation. Um, what do you guys have there? Do you both have tribulation? Yeah. So a lot of people, if you say revelation, they will think, oh, yeah, revelation talks about the great tribulation that's coming. It does talk about a tribulation right here in verse 9, but what it says is John, the guy who was writing this 2,000 years ago, said he was a partaker in the tribulation that he's talking about. And when he says partaker, he says, I, John, your brother, and partaker with you in mm -hmm. the tribulation and kingdom and patience. So he's saying, I am sharing in, I'm participating in this same tribulation that you, my readers, are participating in. So, so the next thing we want to do is we want to see what tribulation were his readers experiencing. I guess, I guess before we do that, let's keep reading here in verse 9 just a little bit. He goes on, he says he's in the Isle of Patmos. Why is he in the Isle of Patmos? Let's, let's show where this is, by the way. I'm going to pull up a map on screen. And um, so here's a map. You see Italy over here, and you see Greece here. Jerusalem would be down here. The Isle of Patmos is right in here off the coast of what would be Turkey. And we'll talk about this cluster of dots here in, in a moment. But he's on this island called Patmos in the Aegean Sea. Why does he say he's there? He's exiled there. You know, it doesn't say exiled, does it? What does it actually say? Oh, sorry. Yes. And uh, because of the word the island, because of the word of God. For the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And, and I think you're right, Chase. I think you are right in saying what he means is he's been punished. He's been exiled there because he's been preaching the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. But every now and then, somebody will read that and think he's saying something else. Can you, could you see another interpretation that somebody might get out of that to say, I'm on this Island for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was transported there to receive the vision or is transported there to preach. I am here to preach the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I, and I, and every now and then I come across somebody who's taken it that way. The thing is, we see this phrase a little bit later on in Revelation chapter six. And, and so the two, the question is, it comes down to two things. Is he saying he's on this island in order to preach the word of God? Or is he saying he's on this island because he's been preaching the word of God and he's being punished? And if we come over to Revelation chapter uh, 6, and it's in verse 9, in a vision, John sees the souls of them that had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. So listen to the two phrases. What John says of himself, I was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And then these saints in Revelation 6, 9, they had been slain, they'd been killed for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. This sounds like the same thing. And, and of course, why they, when it says for the word of God, and the testimony which they held in Revelation 6, 9 is saying they were killed for it. So I think that kind of nails it down. John is using this expression to say, I'm, I'm being punished because I've been preaching the word of God. So I think you're right. He's exiled there. Anything else that you guys want to notice? Uh, again, it's a consistent phrase, Revelation 20 and verse 4. Uh, you have the souls of those who have been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus 
and because of the word of God. There you go. Good, good. So it, it's, it's consistently a, a suffering situation. Yeah. So now we come to, um, now am I sharing my screen? Yeah, I am. I'm going to stop yeah. sharing for just a second. Uh, we come on down to verse 10 and, and John having said, you know, I'm participating in this tribulation with you. I'm on this island because I've been preaching the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Then he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And he talks about hearing a trumpet and, and lo and behold, he sees the Lord. How do we know it's Jesus that he sees here? Um, oh, sorry. I think yeah, verse okay. What do you see in verse eleven? Or sorry, in verse ten, where he says he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Yeah, how, he said he. Uh, what I did, I, I would jump ahead. I said he he hears a trumpet when he's in the spirit on the Lord's day, and he turns around and he sees someone. And I said it's the Lord Jesus. My question was, how do we know it's the Lord Jesus? I mean, he's. Well, He's in verse 13. He, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest was a, with a golden sash. Yeah. And, and then this description is very much like the description of a, of a supernatural being in Daniel 10, who is not mm -hmm. identified specifically. But here, if you come on down to verse 18, this one who, who speaks with John says, actually, let's start in verse 17. <clears throat> when I saw him, I fell at his feet as one dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. I think it makes it pretty clear. This is somebody who's been raised from the dead. I was dead, and I'm alive forevermore. Yeah, for sure. And maybe add to that, if there's any question at all, like if we're going to try to come up with another possibility, uh, Revelation 19, 11 through 15 has a very similar description of somebody whose eyes are like a flame of fire, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and uh, he is identified as the word of God in Revelation 19, 13. Um, so it seems like we're clearly talking about the same entity Good. there. Good. All right. Now, the conversation that Jesus has with John is important. In verse 11, he says, what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, and he names them, Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then we get to chapter 2, and, and, and the message to Ephesus is contained in the first seven verses, and then the message to the church at Smyrna is in the next uh, several verses, and then the church at Pergamum, and, and so on. So remember, John says, I'm a partaker with you in the kingdom, and or in the tribulation, and the kingdom, and in the patience, or the steadfastness, which are in Jesus. I was on the island of Patmos. I, I'm, I am on the island, or he says, I was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was exiled because of what I've been preaching. I saw the Lord, and he told me to write to you. And, and then when we get into what he's writing to them, let's notice chapter two. And I guess let's come right down to verse eight. And if one of you guys could read verses eight through 10. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, 
I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So John says in Revelation uh, 1, 9, he says, I'm a partaker with you in the tribulation. And in chapter 2, verse 9, he says to this second church that the Lord tells him to write to, he says, I know your tribulation. I'm a partaker with you in the tribulation, and I know your tribulation. And it's interesting, too, the Lord speaks to this church, and how does the Lord identify himself in verse 8? He identifies himself as the first and the last who was dead and lived again. Why is that particularly appropriate, given what he says to the church at Smyrna? I mean, with, with the fact that they're going to die, be faithful unto death, you're going to have tribulation for 10 days, and I will give you the crown of life. I mean, th this is what they're facing, but they have just been serving the God that rises people from the dead, and so yeah. they do not need to fear death. If somebody's going to tell you, listen, you need to be faithful, even if it costs you your life, even if you die for your faith, what better person to tell you that than somebody who has died and conquered death and showed that he has the power uh, of the keys of death and of Hades, he can release you from death. So, all right. So John's suffering. He's in tribulation. The church at Smyrna, uh, they're undergoing, they're, they're experiencing tribulation. And it's interesting. This, he talks about the blasphemy of those who say they're Jews and are not. Um, talks about you're gonna, it's going to get worse before it gets better. You're going to be cast into prison. But there's this expression, 10 days. What does that suggest to you guys? A, a relatively short period of time, perhaps. I mean, uh, now, if you're suffering, if you're being persecuted, 10 days might seem like 10 years. Um, but it is not all of their life, uh, or it is not... Um, it is not a long period of time, at least compared to something else. And, and numbers in the book of Revelation often are not literal. They are meant to convey an idea, give an impression, maybe has an Old Testament illusion sometimes. But I think you're right. I think here the idea is 10 days. You're, this is not going to go on forever. And really, that's kind of the point of the book of Revelation. Look, I'm experiencing this tribulation with you. You're going through this tribulation, but it's not going to go on forever. And, and the fact is, the Lord is going to bring the victory, and, and not after 2,000 years. It's going to be a relatively short time. Remember, the very beginning of the book was talking about things shortly to come to pass. The time is at hand. So if you start to get the idea that the book of Revelation is written from somebody who was being persecuted, and it was being written to people who were at that time being persecuted, and the message of the book of Revelation is what God was going to do about the persecution they were experiencing 2,000 years ago, you're starting to get the idea of what the book of Revelation is about. And, and there's more. We come to the next church that the Lord addresses, the church at Pergamum in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 12 and following. Do we see evidence of persecution there? Uh, quite a bit of it, actually, yes. To what extent? Well, you've got uh, Antipas, uh, one of the members of the congregation there, has been murdered. Uh, the word martyr is used in the, the New King James, at least, in verse 13. Yep, yep. And then we come to the, the next church being addressed is Thyatira, and there's a woman in that congregation, and she's referred to here as Jezebel. Uh, Jezebel, of course, would be an allusion to the wicked Old Testament woman 
back in first Kings chapter 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. And, um, and that woman was a pagan idolater and encouraging people to, to worship idols and to turn away from the true God. And this woman is too, but the way she's doing it is she's encouraging compromise. And so if, if we could, let's read verses 20. This is Revelation chapter 2, verses 20 through uh, 22. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. So here's this woman, and she's encouraging people to go along with the world, to eat things, sacrificed idols, to commit fornication. And the message of the book of Revelation is that you've got to overcome. In fact, the Lord says to this church in verse 25, uh, nevertheless, that which you have, hold fast till I come. He that overcomes and he that keeps my works unto the end, to him will I give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and so on. So again, John, he's experiencing tribulation. He's being persecuted. He's writing to people who are in the same condition. And some of those people are hearing a message that says, just compromise. And the message of the book of Revelation is don't compromise. This is not going to go on forever. The Lord is going to give the victory, um, but you're going to have to persevere. Uh, thoughts up to this point, guys. I think one of the interesting things, uh, fairly consistent so far, is the idea of repentance. Um, uh, we saw it in the first letter in Ephesus in verse 5. We saw it in this third letter uh, to Pergamos in verse 16 of chapter 1, or chapter 2. And then three times here in verses 21 and 22, the idea of repenting. Um, Jesus is, is saying, churches, you, you need to wake up. You need to change. You need to do what's right. Um, and, and maybe sometimes it's a whole congregation. Sometimes it's certain individuals within a congregation uh, of these seven churches. Now, one our viewer, Pat, um, mentions that uh, many of the things that are described in the first three chapters were not shortly to come to pass, but in fact had already happened. And I do think there's a point to be made here. If we go back to chapter 1 and verse 19, the Lord had said to John, when he says, write to these seven churches, he says, write therefore the things which you saw and the things which are and the things which shall come to pass hereafter. Um, now, in chapters 2 and 3, when he addresses the seven churches, he really describes the, the conditions that are. The, the things that are already occurring. And then you come to Revelation chapter 4 and uh, verse 1. It says, After these things I saw, and behold, a door opened in heaven, and the first voice that I heard, a voice of a trumpet speaking with me, one saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must come to pass hereafter. So you can think of Revelation this way. Chapter 1 is kind of the introduction. Chapters 2 and 3 are the things that are. It's the condition of the church's at that time, what they're experiencing, the tribulation they're going through, and with promises of victory. And then starting in chapter four, you start to get a description of what the Lord's going to do about this. Uh, but again, as you look at the book of Revelation, it's a message to people at that time, 
and the encouragement that they needed at that time. There are lessons in it abundantly for us, and, and we see parallel issues today. But the book of Revelation was not primarily meant to be a, a um, coded message about events in 2021. Okay? Now, let's go back to uh, Jeff, the seven churches. I had, yeah, Chase. I had myself muted, sorry. This might be a good place for me to ask this, uh, just because I'm curious about it. I've heard people describe Revelation in what I think might be a funny way that seems like a lazy way to describe it. And so I want to get your all's thoughts on it. But just the idea that this is a coded message that only Jewish Christians would have understood because of the so many references to the Old Testament. And so to keep this from getting confiscated and getting in trouble with it, it's been written in this coded way. That way, if a Roman guard took it, he would say, oh, this is just a bunch of gibberish and hand it back. That feels like a lazy way to describe Revelation. Am I wrong? Or is that actually a, a good way to describe what's happening? I'm going to punt this one to Joe. I, you know, I've heard that too. I really don't know if that there was intent. I would just say, there are a lot of phrases. In fact, it's hard to find a passage in the book of Revelation that does not borrow language from the Old Testament. And if you want to read the book of Revelation and understand it in all its nuances, you're going to have to familiarize yourself with all of this language in the Old Testament to have a background to, to understand what it was meant to say, what it was saying. But whether or not that particular style was chosen in order to kind of keep it clandestine from the Roman persecutors, I don't know. Joe, what do you think? A couple points. Um, at this point, there would be a lot of Gentiles in the churches. Um, uh, and so they would not necessarily be familiar. They would have to go back and investigate or talk to a, a Jewish friend or something to, to know who's Jezebel or whatever, you know, to, to get some of that information. So, And then also, we, we see these compromising Christians in some of these churches. How hard would it be for a Roman soldier uh, to uh, to ascertain the the message here? I don't see this as being coded. I, in fact, I see it exactly the opposite. Um, language is given that he's to show, he's to signify in Revelation one one. It's not. The you know the, the the title of the of, of the book for us is not the mystery of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think everything in the book is really intended to be understood in figurative language, um, and maybe it's even along the lines of a parable. Those who don't care are going to say whatever, and yeah. what, yes, and those who are spiritually minded are going to say, "I really want to think about this." What Lord, tell tell us what's happening here. Yeah, and it, I've, that's been my thought similarly with it, especially being called Revelation. That's a good point I hadn't thought about. But also, like, they're going through persecution, I think, regardless or not. I, the, the fact that they're found with this letter, I don't think would be the thing that reveals them to be a Christian. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I, I, there were already things that have happened that have revealed them as being Christians, and they're going to be persecuted anyways. And so th that has always seemed like a little bit of a, a lazy way to describe what's happening. Um, but that, that's just my take on it. And, and the style of literature that, that we see in the book of Revelation with all of the symbolism and all of the uses of, of fantastic animals that don't really exist and uh, all of the imagery that we see uh, in the visions and the, all the numerology, the use of numbers in, in uh, symbolic ways, all of that kind of thing, it's not, 
it's not unique to the book of Revelation. You go back in Ezekiel and you'll find similar passages in Ezekiel's chapter 38, 39. If you go back to the book of Daniel, you'll see things like this. In fact, a lot of the language in the book of Revelation is rooted in, for example, Daniel chapter 7, where you see that same style of literature and some of the same language. And uh, other places in the Old Testament, in Zechariah, where you see this. So to people familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, this was not an unusual, it was a different, it wasn't the, it was, it was not the typical style of literature that we see in the writings of the New Testament, but it was also not a brand new thing. It was not a foreign idea to them. I would mention this just in, in, in Joe, you were talking about Gentile Christians. One of the things that all always impresses me as I read the New Testament is the degree to which Gentile Christians were expected to become familiar with and internalize the history of the Old Testament. Um, that's kind of an interesting thing. Well, okay, Let, let's now notice this. Why these particular seven churches? Uh, and I'm going to go back and I'm going to share this screen again. And you tell me if I'm successfully sharing it. It's so good. All right, so we're going to zoom in on this area right here. And when we do so... Uh, you see the island of Patmos, and then you see these seven churches right here on the on the western end of what would be modern-day Turkey. And the order in which the Lord says, uh, write to, to these seven churches, and the order in which the Lord addresses them in chapters 2 and 3 is Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The order, it just looks like the natural order that if, if somebody were going to go from Patmos and carry this message to these seven churches, he would just follow this course. He'd go to Ephesus and then make the loop up through Smyrna and Pergamum and around to Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and down to Laodicea. And, and, and I say that in part to kind of bring to your mind that that these were actual churches and actual places that were actually going to receive these messages. And I say that because a lot of people assume that really these seven churches are just symbolic for uh, periods in history. Uh, there's one interpretation of the Revelation that says the message to Ephesus is one period in history. The rest reference to Smyrna is another period in history and so on. Yeah. Yes, uh, the teachings of William Branham suggest that as well. I had not um, heard that name. I've been introduced to those recently, and he would say we are now in the Laodicean age. Ah, interesting. Okay. Yeah. The, the thing is... How, how convenient that we're in the last age then. <laughs> yeah, once again, yeah. it's... Yeah. Uh, but the, the, the question still remains, why these churches? So... One of the things that you'll notice, and let's jump over here to Revelation chapter 13, um, because this is the passage, you know, so many people, they don't, they've never read the book of Revelation, but they know that 666 is in it, and they know the mark of the beast is in it, and, and those are things we find in, in Revelation 13, but in Revelation 13, there are two beasts, there's one that comes up out of the sea, and and I don't know that we're going to have time to go back and connect it to Daniel, but if you go back and connect it to Daniel, you would see that this beast represents the, uh, the accumulation of empires, starting with Babylon, and then the Medes and the Persians, excuse me, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. That was the power, the political power 
in the day that John writes this letter. And this beast seems to be a composite of all of those. And Rome really was. Rome had conquered the Greeks and assimilated Greek culture and language throughout the empire. That was the Greek. In fact, at this time, Rome's in control, but John writes this in Greek because Greek is the language of the world. And I say that to say uh, Greek culture and learning and architecture and language had been assimilated into the Roman empire. The Persian culture had previously been assimilated into the Greek and the Babylonian previously into the Persian. And so this beast in Revelation chapter 13 and verses 1 through 10 seems to represent Rome, the, the, the political power, uh, and he's waging war against the saints and persecution of Christians. And then there's a second beast, and it seems to be a religious figure, and it's enforcing the worship of the first beast. In other words, the second beast is, is compelling people to worship the emperor, worship Caesar. And Chase, if you could uh, read verses um, 15 through 17. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has, who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. All right. So we got all the way to the end of the chapter there. So what, you, and I'm glad you did, because we, that way we get oh, sorry. The 666 in there. No, that's all right. I, I needed, we needed to get to the end of the chapter and get that number 666 in there. So people will recognize this is the passage that talks about that. But what yeah. I want you to see is this, this second beast is, is causing people to worship the first beast. And the first beast represents the political power, Rome. So my wife, Libby, and I were in Ephesus, the ruins of the city of Ephesus, a couple of years ago. And while we were there, walking through the, the ruins of the city, we saw the ruins of the temple that was built toward the end of the first century for the worship of Domitian. Uh, Ephesus was a temple guardian city. It was a city that had been honored with the right to build a temple to the Roman emperor and at this time in history, the Roman Empire was trying to extend its influence and, and, and build up its rapport with the uh, provinces in Asia, in uh, Turkey. Asia was one of the provinces, not the Asia we think of today, but really just this area where these cities are, these seven cities of Asia. The word Asia there refers to a province in the western end of Turkey. Rome had established provinces here, and they had governing authorities here, but they were still trying to establish their rapport with the populations, and the populations of this part of the, of, of the world were trying to endear themselves to Rome, and it was considered a great honor if you were given the right to build a temple in honor of uh, the emperor. And there were 37, if I remember correctly, 37 cities throughout this little area uh, here in Turkey that were given the right to build temples to the emperor. And it became a great societal impetus. Uh, we, this, is, this is for our civic pride, for our civic good. We all need to worship the emperor. 
And, and as you can imagine, the pressure that would be upon a citizen of one of those cities, if you're a Christian and you don't feel the need, you don't feel it's right to worship a man, and yet there's this societal pressure because we need, we need to be in his good graces. Uh, Pergamum was another place that was, was a temple guardian. Um, and so you look at these seven cities, and these seven cities are right in this hotbed of emperor worship. Um, and, and you start to understand in Revelation 13, when it starts talking about this second beast who's enforcing the worship of the first beast, the cult of Caesar that operates in these temples that are being set up in these cities, enforcing the worship of the emperor, and Christians are being told, you can't do that. There's a Jezebel who's encouraging compromise, go along with it, and yet the Lord is saying, no, you be faithful, even unto death. In Pergamum, a guy had been put to death. And John says, look, I'm going through this persecution with you. I know the persecution you're going through. Does that start to help us see the book of Revelation was about something that was going on then and what the Lord was going to do about it rather than what's going on in the 21st century particularly? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And, uh, um, uh, Pat had made an earlier comment about, you know, all the details that are being laid out, particularly in chapters two and three, uh, would only be uh, significant or relevant if it was something that was happening in their generation. Um, you know, why write to these churches that are real churches, as you pointed out, if, uh, if these aren't things that are happening to them? Can you getting a letter saying that, uh, you know, these things are going to happen, but he really doesn't mean you. He means some people on another continent uh, a couple thousand years from now. Yeah. And just imagine giving this, oh, sorry, I was going to say, and just imagine giving this letter to a group of persecuted Christians, and yet it doesn't apply to them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thanks a lot, John. We could have used a little help here yeah. with what yeah. we're going through, but. <laughs> right. All right. Let's, let's take a few minutes then. And, uh, and let's just quickly uh, look at what is said to each of these churches, because there, there are some very important things said to them. And uh, whatever you want to talk about, let's just start with Ephesus. What do you notice in what the Lord says to the church at Ephesus? One of the things I noticed right off the bat is that this would be the kind of group that I think I would really be impressed with. Uh, you know, they, they've got a lot going for them in verse 2. You know, it, we, we would go to visit them and we'd say, wow, this is an active church. This is a, a church that's really, you know, they, they've, they've got their priorities right. They're not um, up with false teaching. And the fact is, they don't have their first love. They've, they've yeah. lost their first love. And it's a church that, if, at the time John is writing, has been around for a good while at this point. Um, and so it would be a church I think we would all kind of identify now as this being a haven't been around for a while in comparison to some of the other churches. And this church likely has elders and shepherds in it. And yet, like Joe said, it, he says, you've left your first love. Um, and so it, it's a good reminder to us that we need to not lose sight on who our first love is. Yeah, um, we can we might kind have, of... Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, we have all these outward things that show good fruit, but inwardly, what, what are we? Yeah. We can kind of get on spiritual autopilot where things are going well, and we kind of take things for granted, and we kind of may lose our fire a little bit, lose our zeal for a minute a little bit. Maybe that that makes us open to compromise in a way we're not even aware of because we're kind of coasting along pretty well. And and what 
he tells the churches, you need to repent or I will move your lampstand out of its place. So in the beginning chapter, John sees the Lord and the Lord is standing in the midst of this seven lampstands and they represent these seven churches. And, um, and, and yet the Lord says, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. What do you see in the next message to Smyrna? We talked about it just a little bit already. Who do you think he means when in verse nine, he says, uh, I know the blasphemy of them that say they are Jews and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. It seems to me that he's talking about the, those that he's surround that are surrounding the church. Um, uh, they are being influenced by the Jews of that city or something to that effect. You know, you can imagine the Jews uh, saying we're God's people. Um, uh, you know, we, we, we're, we're the ones and because they have rejected Christ, then their synagogue is no longer a synagogue of God. It's a synagogue of Satan. Do we have any precedent for, I mean, what he says is they say they're Jews and they're not. Do we have any precedent for referring to people who really are Jews and saying, well, they're really not Jews? <laughs> I'm thinking of Re Romans 2. Yeah. Those, those who are, the, the, where in Romans chapter 2, Paul yeah, yeah. talks about those who are truly Jews are those who choose Jews inwardly and not just outwardly. And so, yeah. so it kind of makes sense that, that yeah. he, he could say, uh, talking about Jews, they say they're Jews, but they're not really because they're not inwardly God's people. And, and the fact is in the book of Acts, we see Jews instigating persecution by the Gentiles against the Christians. We see it in Thessalonica, for example, in Acts chapter 17. And it kind of sounds like that may be what's going on here. Even in the time of Christ, where were a lot of the oppositions, especially early on, uh, presented to, to Jesus? He would commit the horrible crime of healing somebody in the synagogue, and uh, they would begin to plot to kill him. And, and, then, and then they used the Romans, Pontius Pilate, to, to put him to death. Uh, what do you see in the message to the church at Pergamum? We talked just a little bit about it. Antipas was one in Pergamus who had been killed. I think both it and the next one, you have this uh, uh, two-part danger of sexual morality and idolatry. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's discussed both in Pergamum and in Thyatira. And that's an age-old issue, right? Uh, sexual morality and idolatry were something that mm -hmm. been uh, used by Satan as a pair uh, to, to tempt man for a long time. I'm thinking particularly about the time of, of Balaam and, and Balak and the, the Moabite women and so forth. Yeah, yeah, in Numbers and, chapter 25. Mm -hmm. And just false teaching in general being called out, which will be addressed later in the, in the Revelation. Um, but in verse 15, uh, you, you've also... Some who, in the same way, hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I think there's this, this, there's a, there's a connection here between fornication and idolatry. Um, if I want, if I don't want to um, submit myself to God's rules as far as sexual morality is concerned, if I want to do what I want to do, uh, I'm not going to want to listen to the God who really speaks because He's going to tell me you can't do what you want to do. I'm going to want to listen to a God that doesn't speak. Uh, a God that I just impose on it, whatever theology that comes out of my own heart. And so idolatry. 
What about uh, the message to the church at, uh, uh, let's skip down to Sardis in chapter three. He tells them to wake up in verse two, uh, well, in verse one, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. Mm-hmm. And so they might look alive to everyone else, but the Lord knows that they're dead, that God's the judge of that. So the thinking just so far, what we're seeing in these churches yeah, they're going through persecution. Yes, John is sympathetic in that sense, but at the same time, he's not just saying, oh, poor you, you're being persecuted. He's saying, look, you're pers- you're being persecuted, and to some degree, in one way or another, you're kind of slipping, you're kind of caving, um, it, with a couple of exceptions. Smyrna and Philadelphia seem to be doing fairly well, but his message is basically, you've got to stand strong, you've got to persevere. Um, you, you have the church at Philadelphia is one that he doesn't really have anything negative to say about. And then let's just jump to the last one, Laodicea. We've got just a minute. What, what lesson do you get out of what he says to the church at Laodicea? You neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold. I will spew you out of my mouth. So, so the book of Revelation is not specifically about geopolitical events today, but there's a lesson right here for us. And that is a church that manages just to feel comfortable within its times, a church of people that manages to feel comfortable within the larger worldly pagan society is a church that is losing it. And uh, that was the case with the church at Laodicea. Joe, you started to say something. Uh, No, uh, just recognizing that they've left Jesus out. Uh, At the end of uh, that letter, Jesus is standing outside knocking, wanting to come in, um, uh, I think that's an indication of, of their spiritual state. They're going about their business thinking that they got everything taken care of, but they've not included the Lord. But thankfully, the Lord is asking to come in, and they, they need to heed that. All right. Well, I hope if you got anything out of the webcast today, I hope that you see that it was a message to Christians at that time in the first century talking about the things they were experiencing and what they needed to do about it, and that the Lord was going to give them victory. There are lessons for us but we shouldn't look at the book of Revelation as about geopolitical events in the world today. Thanks a lot. I hope you'll tune in again next week.